This week I watched two TED Talks which critiqued the self-help industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry. And the first uh, talk was titled, Why Self-Help Will Not Change Your Life. Marianne was obsessed with self-improvement ideas and techniques, but they failed her. She said, 10 months into my self-improvement challenge, I actually felt like more of a failure than I ever had in my life. And Marianne gave two critiques of self-help philosophy and methodology. One, self-improvement creates unrealistic standards about how great life should be and unrealistic pressures that you put on yourselves to be perfect. Two, self-improvement creates self-obsession. The more Marianne tried to, to improve herself, the more aware she was of her flaws. She said, the more I thought about myself, the more I hated myself. She concluded about her self-help obsession, the main thing I learned was that I didn't need to change myself I needed to accept myself, warts and all. And she encouraged her audience, please remember that you're okay the way you are. If you get up every morning and do your best to be a decent person, that's really enough. And she ended her TED Talk with these striking words, I thought I was broken and I needed to fix myself. And I now see that I was never broken, and I didn't need to fix myself, and neither do you. The second talk that I watched was titled, The Dark Side of Self-Improvement. Suzanne explained, the dark side exists because deep within many of us is an ancient belief that there is something wrong with us. We may not be fully conscious of it, but it's there and it affects us. It's a painful belief to hold. It's also a false belief. Suzanne said, we're not broken, we're whole. She said, first, when we think there's something wrong with us, we look outside ourselves for answers and solutions. We abandon our own inner wisdom, our inspired impulses, our genuine longings, and instead, we place all of our trust in the advice of others. We give our power away. Suzanne shared about helping a client, Darla, client of hers, and she described, Darla discovered there was nothing wrong with her that needed to be fixed. She only needed to slow down and listen to her own inner guidance. Darla learned that her best guide to fulfillment is herself. Darla is the expert and authority on her own life. Each one of us is the expert and authority on our own lives. We give our power away when we judge ourselves as lacking. And Suzanne encouraged her audience with these final words. Trust your inner self of what's right for you and what isn't. Listen to what your inner voice is telling you about what you really want, as Darla did And promise to keep listening to yourself. Learn to love yourself forward into the light of truth. You have what it takes to succeed because you are what it takes. Interesting. One of Marianne's critiques of self-improvement is that it creates self-obsession. 
Yet Marianne's and Suzanne's solution to the problem of self-improvement philosophy and methodology is self-obsession. When we feel that we're broken, that we lack something, that we should be what we aren't, is the best answer to deny that we're broken or lacking and to instead believe we're already whole? If we're looking inside ourselves to find wisdom, power, worthiness, and wholeness, we're not looking outside of ourselves for these things. And if we're not looking outside of of ourselves for these things, we cannot be looking to Christ for these things. To look inward is death and ruin. Self-importance, self-love, self-obsession are enemies of the gospel. Our redemption and our wholeness as human beings because they blind us to our need of Christ and God's sovereign grace in Christ. And as Christians, we were not actually above being influenced by crushing and ruinous self-obsession. Self-obsession can influence our thoughts about God. Self-obsession can influence our thoughts about our own salvation. It's ever tempting for us to attribute at least some aspect of our justification, at least some aspect of our sanctification to our own worthiness, our own choices, our own hard work. We may sometimes wrongly believe God loves us because, hey, we're lovable. We may sometimes wrongly believe that we need to be worthy in order to be saved. And this kind of thinking, at best, undermines our comfort and joy, or at worst, ruins us. Friends, for unworthy and helpless sinners, sovereign grace is the gospel. Sovereign grace is the gospel. What I mean is sovereign grace is the essence of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord. Sovereign grace is the gospel's DNA. It's inside every cell of the gospel and is responsible for the gospel. To put it quite simply, God is responsible for your salvation from start to finish. And that's why we worship, serve, and glorify God alone. God the Father Almighty is the sovereign maker of heaven and earth. Jesus Christ is the sovereign begotten Son of God and Lord of all things. The divine conception and virgin birth of Jesus happened by God's sovereign power. The suffering, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ happened by God's sovereign decree, plan, purpose, and will, and is effectively uh, what achieves the entirety of our salvation, the reign, rule, ongoing intercession and coming return and judgment of Christ are what they are because Christ is sovereign. The application of the gospel to sinners which assures their salvation is the work of the sovereign, God's sovereign, Holy Spirit. Predestination, effectual calling, regeneration, repentance, faith, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification depend on God's free and sovereign grace alone. For what part of your salvation do you take credit? And if your answer is anything other than none, 
You boast not in Christ alone, but also in your own ability and achievements. And in that case, you've made Jesus a partial Savior, and in reality, no Savior at all. But Jesus is an actual and successful Savior. Sovereign grace is the gospel's DNA. Jesus used little dependent children, even infants, to depict how a sinner receives the kingdom. He used helpless, foolish, straying sheep to illustrate the Father's sovereign and effectual pursuit and rescue of his sinning people. Jesus explained that a self-important, self-confident, and self-sufficient rich young man couldn't enter the kingdom by his own merits. Jesus said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Jesus told a parable with the main point being God is just to everyone But he extends his free and sovereign saving grace to whomever he chooses and no one should judge or begrudge his sovereign goodness and grace. Dear saints, sovereign grace is the gospel's DNA. God does for sinners what sinners can't do for themselves and though it offends our self-love, it's good news. It's, It's the best of news. Sovereign grace is the context of Matthew 20. Verses 17 through 19. Matthew goes from, I choose to give, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, to Jesus foretelling his inevitable suffering, death, and resurrection, which are the definitive expression of God's sovereign grace. Verses 17 through 19 explain how God chooses to achieve impossible salvation for sinners through his son. You can see in verses 17 through 19 how God providentially guided people's actions to achieve his sovereign and redemptive plan through his son. Jesus taught his disciples the gospel as God achieved the gospel in history before their very eyes. So behold God's sovereign grace at work in the text. Next, or first, I should say. Sovereign grace in the name of Jesus. Verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, his name tells you why he was going up to Jerusalem. Matthew began his gospel, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And God promised Joseph through the angel. Do you remember what it was? She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for, here's the reason, he will save his people from their sins. Joseph named the child Jesus because God had chosen the name. You shall is the Greek future indicative, which means the angel was stating what absolutely would be. It would be. God sovereignly chose that name because of what he sent his son to do. For he will save his people from their sins. Again, Matthew used the Greek future indicative. Will save. He bears that name not because of what he would potentially do, but because of what he would actually do. Is the fireman a savior when the person he tries to save dies in the fire? 
For he will save his people from their sins, and none whom he intends to save will perish. This breeds confidence and comfort in Christ. Sovereign grace is infused in his name. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he was going up to do all that he needed to do to save you and to save me from our sins and misery. His very name is the assurance of your salvation. His very name is sovereign grace. Next, sovereign grace in the title of Christ. Matthew began the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. At the end of his genealogy, Matthew wrote, Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Matthew 1.18 says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Uh, Christ is Jesus' title or his role. Christ means anointed one, and, and Christ is an appellative I had to look it up, research it. All right, don't be impressed. Appellative. What on earth is an appellative? An appellative is using a title or a role as the name for a person. So, for example, kids, when the woman, when you refer to the woman who brought you into this world as mommy, you are using an appellative. You are referring to her as the name of her title of what she has done. Uh, or after your checkup, you say, thank, thank you, doctor. That's an appellative. You're, you're taking the title or role of doctor and you're referring to the person that gave you the medical care. Christ is an appellative that we use to refer to Jesus, the Son of God. Christ is Jesus' title that tells us about his role in our lives. Jesus is our anointed and sovereign, you should know what's coming, prophet, priest, and king. Prophet, priest, and king. As God's anointed and sovereign prophet, Jesus reveals and teaches us God's will concerning our salvation. Throughout Matthew, Jesus reveals his divine wisdom and power, teaches people about salvation. In verses 17 through 19, as prophet, Jesus teaches his disciples privately about his looming suffering, crucifixion, and resurrection. Jesus reveals God's secret counsel and will concerning salvation. As God's anointed and sovereign priest, Jesus willingly goes to Jerusalem to offer himself as our one atoning sacrifice. He goes up to offer himself as satisfaction for God's divine justice and to reconcile his people to God. What did John the Baptist say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in verses 17 through 19, they reveal the Lamb's ascent into suffering and death to take away our sins. As God's anointed and sovereign king, Jesus governs, defends, and preserves his people with his teaching and with his Holy Spirit as he obtains salvation for them. He defeats his people's enemies by going up to Jerusalem to suffer, die, and be raised from the dead. When Matthew introduces Jesus as the Christ, he's telling us about sovereign grace working through the life and achievements of the Christ of the Christ, of Jesus. 
as Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king, continues to intercede for us, he's continuing to serve us, he's continuing to save us, it's sovereign grace in motion. Behold sovereign grace in the text. Next. Sovereign grace in the decrees of God. The decrees of God. Jesus, notice that he foretold his suffering, death, and resurrection several times uh, before verses 17 through 19 in Matthew 16, verse 21, and then uh, a few times in different ways in 17, verses 9, 12, and then 22 and 23. Verses 17 through 19 are the first time that Jesus mentions Gentiles and the specifics of mocking, flogging, and crucifixion. Now, how was Jesus so sure about all the details of his suffering, death, and resurrection? How's he sure about all that? Consider consider all the people involved in carrying out verses 17 through 19. How could Jesus be so sure that it wouldn't happen another way? Maybe in a way that he didn't see coming. Maybe in a way that the free actions of men would disrupt. And maybe he'd be stoned instead of crucified or something like that. How did he know? Because it was God's sovereign decree, will, and purpose. We call it the covenant of redemption. Before the foundation of the world, God predestined the suffering, death, and resurrection of his son for the salvation of all the elect, and the son was in full agreement to achieve God's sovereign redemptive plan. Is there, is there any question in looking at, the, at uh, Jesus in the Gospels that Jesus knew God's will for him, that he didn't? Like, is there any question that he was completely knowing full well what was awaiting him as he ascended to Jerusalem. Did he doubt? Did he question? Did he have any details wrong? No. Jesus prophesied God's divine decree. Now let me strengthen this point. In Luke 18, 31 through 33, Jesus says this, or Luke writes this, and taking the 12, He said to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. There are six Greek future indicatives in those three verses. Will be delivered, will be mocked, will be shamefully treated, will be spit upon, they will kill him, and he will rise from the dead. There was no other possible outcome. The confidence of Jesus was anchored to God's sovereign decrees, which the prophets declared years beforehand. All of it happened as Jesus said. Here are two more significant passages that strengthen this point even more. First, in Acts 2, Peter preaches to to, uh, the Jewish crowd on the day of Pentecost, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by. In Acts 4, Peter and John, they get out of prison, wild stuff was happening, they head to their friends, and they tell them all about their adventures, 
And they prayed together and they addressed God in their prayer as sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And they prayed together for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Acts 2 and 4 accompany verses 17 through 19 very, very well. What compelled Jesus to go to Jerusalem knowing what awaited him? God's sovereign decree and God's sovereign grace for sinners. Dear brothers and sisters, God decreed our Savior's journey as well as his suffering, death, and resurrection to fully save us and free us to live for Christ. Romans 8.32 teaches that God gave up his son for us all. Hebrews 2.9 teaches that by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for you and me. God's sovereign decree is sovereign grace for us. Jesus disclosed his suffering, death, and resurrection only to the 12. The, the others didn't need to know all of these details at this point. And though the 12 didn't fully understand, they would need these memories later to be bold and faithful witnesses in the world to the gospel of Christ. Jesus led them to Jerusalem right into trouble right along with him so that they would, by the Spirit's working, through these memories, develop this deep conviction and strength to give their lives to preaching the gospel throughout the world so that all God intends to be saved would be saved. Next, sovereign grace in the resolve of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, and as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, Mark tells us that Jesus was walking ahead of them uh, knowing the agony ahead, he led them to Jerusalem. He was entirely submitted to his father's sovereign will. This makes me think of the cowardly lion from The Wizard of Oz. You might have seen it, and he's some very good comic relief in the film. And uh, he knows that he's a coward, and so he hasn't slept for weeks, and the tin man uh, suggests counting sheep, and the lion, he responds, that doesn't do any good. I'm afraid of them. <laughs> you remember the moment, maybe? And eventually, when they all walk down this long hallway right to go to the wizard, he's trying to get out of it. He's turning, I'll wait outside, you know, trying to get back. And, and uh, we know what that's like to approach something that is just, oh, it's beyond me. I want out of this. Jesus is a lion. Jesus is a lion, but he's not a cowardly one. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Preeminent, beautiful, regal, valiant, and mighty, resolved to do what his father sent him to do. Behold him in the text. He's not hesitating. He's not looking for a way out. He's not turning back. He's not running away. He's walking toward danger to be your actual, to be your unstoppable savior. And later, when his sweat becomes like drops of blood, his resolve remains unchanged. Not my will, but yours be done. Why? For your salvation. 
for your new life, for your good works, for your eternal joy. He did for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Self-help ends in ruin and destruction. Saints, the resolve of Jesus Christ to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves is sovereign grace for us. You, you may have heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. That's a lie, and it's not a Bible verse. It's possibly adapted from an ancient Greek proverb, a late 19th century, gives a little flavor of this, and it's, uh, it's a fable that's uh, titled Hercules and the Wagoner, and it goes like this. When the gods saw the wagoner kneel, crying, Hercules, lift me my wheel. From the mud where tis stuck, he laughed, no such luck. Set your shoulder yourself to the wheel. And the, and the moral of that fable is the gods help those who help themselves. And this is the theology of many Christians. God has done as much as he can do for you. Now it's up to you to help yourself to his grace. Lots of people believe that. It's false. It's absolutely false. That's a lie. God has done the impossible. The workers in the parable, they didn't help themselves to his grace. The master granted and gave his grace as he chose. And he was right to do so and amazing to do so. And all of us, dear brothers and sisters, receive grace because Jesus chose to head to Jerusalem and because Jesus chooses to apply to you his suffering, his crucifixion, and his resurrection. Behold the resolve of your Christ as he goes up for you, valiant, brave, resolved. This is sovereign grace. Let me ask you a question. Since Jesus was fully resolved to go up into suffering and death for you, is he not also fully resolved to save you to the uttermost? To give you the grace you need to endure to the end to be finally saved. He, he's still saving you by sovereign grace. This is where sovereign grace is becomes this deep comfort, this, uh, this deep assurance, this breath of fresh air for believers. In fulfillment of God's gospel promise in the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, 15, the angel told Jesus, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. The sovereign resolve of Jesus to save you does not stop short of his sanctifying work in you to fully save you in the end. His, his cross and resurrection have purchased your sanctification. Sovereign grace. His resolve continues to be worked out as he continues to save you. This is sovereign grace, and I want for this church so much for sovereign grace to be a deep comfort. Not a battering ram, not a hammer, Oh, the deep comfort of the soul when the night is long and hard. Next, sovereign grace in the suffering of Jesus Christ. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. Why was he going up? To suffer. To suffer and to die. 
for you and me. He was going up with his disciples for what? For the feast and the celebration of the Passover. And on the way, he spoke about, on the way to the celebration, he spoke about his suffering and his death and his resurrection. But there's a connection between his sobering comments and the celebration of the Passover. Exodus 12 explains the Passover. According to the Father's houses in Israel, every man took a one-year-old male lamb without blemish and kept it until twilight on the 14th day. On that day, all of Israel killed the lambs slaughtered the lambs. They, they took the lamb's blood and painted it on the doorposts and the lintels of their houses. They roasted little lammy and they ate little lammy. Why did God have them do this? Why would you do that? The lambs died instead of Israel's firstborn. The lamb was the substitute for the household. When the Lord went through, the Lord went through Egypt, killing the firstborn sons, the blood was the gospel. This house belongs to the Lord because the lamb died to save. The lamb's blood signaled to God to pass over that household. The household was saved from God's just wrath by the blood of the lamb. And Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. The lamb was headed to bleed out in Jerusalem for our salvation. Beloved saints, Christ is our Passover lamb. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, God was sovereignly providing his lamb. Jesus would be delivered over to the chief priests who would then condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and like a lamb led to the slaughter to be crucified on a Roman cross. God was sovereignly providing his lamb to be killed in our place so that by his blood, God's just judgment and wrath pass over us. This is good news of God's sovereign grace in Jesus Christ. That's God's sovereign grace working in history. Now, through the actions of men, the wicked actions of men to rescue you and to rescue me from our sin and misery and to lead us into everlasting life and everlasting favor. Christ's suffering is sovereign grace for you. We confess the Apostles' Creed. We did this morning. And uh, thanks, uh, Tim, for leading us through that. And And we confess that Jesus Christ suffered, right? Suffered. Now, here's what we mean when we confess that. During all the time he lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. Thus, by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he has redeemed our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtained for us the grace of God, righteousness, and eternal life. Christ's suffering is sovereign grace for you and me. He, he suffered, was pierced for our transgressions, was, was despised and rejected, was a man of sorrows and acquainted with much grief. He carried our griefs and sorrows. God struck him, afflicted him, pierced him for our transgressions and crushed him for our iniquities. His wounds are our healing. 
1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And later Peter added, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. This is the good news of God's sovereign grace in the sufferings of Jesus Christ our Lord. He suffered for us. He alone brings us to God. And we confess the Apostles' Creed that Jesus descended into hell. That's weird. We confess it and often don't understand what that means. What are we confessing? What what do we mean by that? What, What comfort do we draw from that? In my greatest sorrows and temptations, I may be assured and comforted that my Lord Jesus Christ, by his unspeakable anguish, pain, terror, and agony, which he endured throughout all his sufferings, but especially on the cross, has delivered me from the anguish and torment of hell. That is the deepest comfort. His suffering is sovereign grace for you and me. He was achieving the impossible for us. He suffered for us, his enemies, to make us, his enemies, his friends. He did it by himself. We didn't help him. In verses 17 through 19, Jesus explains to his disciples what he needed to suffer to reconcile them to God, to God be the glory great things he has done. Next, sovereign grace in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The disciples were afraid, very afraid, amazed at Jesus, when Jesus was valiantly going ahead of them to Jerusalem. And Jesus didn't simply say, I'm going to suffer and die. And end there. He added an important detail to the end of that. Something that is important to hear. Something that they needed needed for their souls. Verse 19, and he will be raised on the third day. What a promise, what hope, what comfort, what gospel, what sovereign grace. So you log into your bank account uh, online and a sense of horror hits you. Every penny is gone. Gone, a hacker emptied your accounts. And you start to panic You start to go crazy. You're melting down in this moment. And then the the, the phone rings and it's your bank and they're calling you to tell you that they've noticed the problem and they remind you that it's actually their liability and that they're on it and that your money is safe and that you'll be refunded all of your money, every cent. You were melting down, panicking, but the bank's call, that went a long way, right? It calmed your spirit. Well, the disciples are hearing these things, but they couldn't process, will be raised on the third day. They couldn't process that part. What is up with that? They couldn't process any of it, really, blind. I mean, they just weren't getting it. But that last part was the promise of salvation and the promise of comfort. By sovereign power, God would surely raise Jesus from the dead. In Ephesians 1, Paul talked about the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe He talked about God's great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The immeasurable greatness of of God's power and might which raised Jesus from the dead is the power and might, dare I say, is the grace 
which sovereignly raises our souls from death to life and will raise our bodies from death to life in the last day. Sovereign grace was at work in Christ's resurrection, has already worked our spiritual resurrection, and will work our physical resurrection on the last day. This is sovereign grace in Christ's resurrection. The world condemned Jesus and did the unthinkable, but the Father raised Jesus and did the impossible. By raising him from the dead, God vindicated Jesus, thus declaring him true and righteous man. Paul explained in Romans 1-4 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The last part of verse 19, he will be raised from the dead, confirms that Jesus Christ is true and righteous man, able to be our perfect mediator, the one that we need That's sovereign grace. That's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit working our redemption from start to finish and get this, without any help from you and me. We did not assist him in any way, shape, or form. That's sovereign grace. To God alone be the glory, amen? Amen. Being self-obsessed will not help you believe this. Being self-obsessed will not bow you low before the Lord in adoration, esteem, worship, and praise. Being self-obsessed will not help you submit yourself entirely to Christ to do what God calls you to do. Don't be self-obsessed. Be sovereign grace-obsessed. Lastly, sovereign grace in the gratitude of our lives. Dear saints, God's sovereign grace humbles us into thankfulness. It humbles us into thankfulness. Behold your Christ in verses 17 through 19 and realize that he was going up to Jerusalem for you to do what you couldn't do for yourself, to give you what you are entirely unworthy of. Grace motivates. It's it's a little rhyme I made up that I think is helpful. Grace motivates motivates us to love and serve our king who has a treasury of grace that cannot be emptied. When we believe this, when we take this to heart, sovereign grace becomes our secure bond to Christ and liberates us to love others when they are unworthy and when they have not merited it. We're free then to love They have not earned it, but we will give it because we understand how sovereign grace works. Sovereign grace makes us quick to forgive, quick to be patient, quick to be selfless, to love selflessly because while we were yet sinners and while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. Self-obsession prevents us from loving God and loving others. Now the world's going to tell you In many different ways, listen to what your inner voice is telling you about what you really want. Sovereign grace liberates us from that prison, from the prison of self-obsession to think first and to think freely by the Spirit and by God's grace about what God wants and, and how to best love and serve others for the glory of the God who saved us by sovereign grace and not the glory of ourselves. Sovereign grace is powerful. Sovereign grace is influential. It puts gratitude into your heart. It turns self-congratulation into thankfulness. 
It turns self-promotion into praise of God. And dare I say that if you listen to some people's testimonies of their own salvation, you hear about them. That's a shame. That's missing sovereign grace. Believing sovereign grace, believing in sovereign grace makes a difference in the day-to-day. That day-to-day routine of our lives. See, on the mountaintops, when they come, we are so thankful and we are so humbled just to receive. And in the valleys, we are patient and dependent, trusting that our sovereign God is sustaining us and he is working all things for our salvation. That's a rock to stand on in the valley. If you credit even a little bit of your salvation to yourself, what happens is entitlement just seeps its way in. It creeps in and a sense of, God, you owe me this. Just, just seeps in, creeps in, and entitlement ends up step by step dismantling your comfort, your confidence, your assurance, your peace, your joy, your rest, your thankfulness in Christ. Just dismantles, pulls it apart, slowly sometimes. Self-obsession is very dangerous because it dilutes God-centered theology and piety. Feeling utterly unworthy feeling utterly wrecked under the law and unworthy and at the same time utterly accepted and loved by God because of the merits of Christ alone is necessary to live the Christian life. You need that, that, that balance there of self-sacrifice, to live a life of self-sacrifice and to have true and unwavering comfort, confidence, assurance, peace, joy, rest, and thankfulness. The Christian life is impossible without ongoing sovereign grace. But praise be to God, God does the impossible for us and God does the impossible in us. People give their lives for Christ. They walk into trouble for Christ's sake. They endure suffering with joy when they believe God's sovereign grace is working in them doing the impossible, doing in them what they cannot do themselves. The fast track away from God toward discouragement, despair, and self-dependence is to think you helped God in some way save you. And, and it's up to you to continue to perform in order to be saved in the end. That's very, very dangerous. Our only comfort is to know that God did the impossible to take us to himself and does the impossible to keep us close to himself. That's comforting. And the more you believe it, the more grateful and the more loving you become. Dear saints, find comfort for your souls in knowing God wants you the unworthy. He wants you. And that God has sought you the unworthy. And that God has taken you the unworthy to be his forever. Let your comfort be not your grip on him, but his grip on you. Let that be your boast. The pressure is off you when you believe this. The pressure's off. You just trust and receive. You pray your eyes out, pray your heart out, and God responds by giving you what you cannot 
get any other way. Simply rejoice that you belong to Christ and trust the sovereign and gracious promises of God to you, dear saint.